This is the Hymn Publications Podcast. I'm Chad Harrington. Today's podcast is about prayer as a part of our spiritual formation series taught in person at Harpeth Christian Church. Understand and use the Lord's Prayer as a framework for daily prayer to help you connect with God. This starts with understanding the primary purpose of prayer as union, not utility. Then we need to be honest about what holds us back from prayer and authentically ask, why pray at all? But the main bulk of today's lesson is the meaning of each line of the Lord's Prayer. What does hallowed mean? What is the kingdom of God and why are we praying not to be led into temptation if God would never do that anyway? And how does it all fit together as a cohesive whole? This session is intended to give you a deep understanding of the Lord's Prayer so that you can use it meaningfully as a framework for daily prayer for the rest of your life. I offer my translation of the Lord's Prayer, or as many call it, the Our Father Prayer, and you can download this translation, print it off, and frame it because we had our design team format it for just that purpose. So go to hymnpublications.com and search for Our Father Prayer or click on the link in the show notes of this episode. You can also download the class notes, worksheets, and resources mentioned in this session by contacting us at hymnpublications.com about. Now here's the session. Today, class six, we're talking about prayer. And I want to just say this, are you feeling overwhelmed? Man, I'm not as far as I thought I was. It feels like there's a lot of work to do. You know, and it's like, Chad, you're setting the bar really high. I've heard people say that. And here's what I want to say. Yes, I am setting the bar high because Christ gave us an example and his bar is high. But here's what I also want to say. Number one, by God's grace and God's power, we can actually grow to become like Jesus. We can't become Jesus, but we can become like him. But number two, and I, I want to make this really clear. If you look at the whole journey, you know, all the, the spiritual formation kind of charts, just write this big word across it, grace. Because we're aiming for this target, which is to become like Jesus. But it's not like you have to do all this stuff to be saved. This is part of the salvation life gift that we receive. And there's just tons of grace in this journey. So just remember that, that we're shooting for a target, but there's grace all throughout and surrounding it. And I also want to say this, just to attach it to scripture, that our sanctification, which is what spiritual formation is, results in life, which means vitality. In Romans 6, verse 22, Paul says, But now that you have been freed from sin and enslaved to God, the advantage you get is sanctification. The end, or like the goal, is eternal life. Eternal life not meaning when you die, eternal life. Eternal life meaning everlasting life and vitality that starts now. That's the result of sanctification. So last session we talked about the importance of studying God's word, which is the first word of prayer, and prayer is our subject today. So I'm really excited about this because my journey with prayer started when I was just a kid. So I want to share a little bit about kind of my background so you know where I'm coming from um, as we start talking about the Word of God and how the Lord's Prayer can help us pray. Yeah, I started a prayer list when I was just a kid, really. Um, and it was such a gift. I was able to experience the Lord starting in the seventh grade, um, writing some of my prayers down um, and watching the Lord move and kind of having a chronicle of that. And I've used a prayer list on and off ever since. I've 
gone through ups and downs in my prayer walk, but the one practice that I want to focus on today is saying the Lord's Prayer, but kind of coupled with a prayer list, okay? So that's the assignment for this session is coming up with a prayer list that you use regularly. And I also want to say that along my journey, I've learned that prayer, it's like when you're a kid, you think like a kid, and then when you're an adult, you mature, right? I think there's that with our prayer life. As we start out, which can start out when you are an adult, it doesn't necessarily mean you start out praying when you're a kid or even praying meaningfully. But I would say that I prayed mostly outcome-oriented prayers when I was young. And those aren't bad. I mean, the, we want outcomes when we pray, right? But there was a fundamental shift in my relationship through prayer with God that changed from outcome-oriented prayers to prayer as union with God that can lead to outcomes. And so I'm going to share more about my journey with that next week because we're going to talk about fasting next week. But I wanted you to know at least where I'm coming from in general. And so my goal today is, is connected to that. My goal is that you would be able to understand and use the Lord's Prayer as a framework for daily prayer for the purpose of union with God. So in other words, if you come to God and, and it's, it's just about getting... And again, there, there's, it's like the requests that we make in prayer. But if that's all it is, there's a deeper level of prayer that you can get to with the Lord. And, and it's rich and, and good and, and, and deeper. So in other words, I'm saying add on to this, expand. And so I first want to cast a vision for prayer as union, not utility. And that's the primary purpose of prayer. It's to align our hearts with God. And then to look at some barriers that we're up against. But the bulk of our time is actually walking through the Our Father Prayer. Most people call it the Lord's Prayer. Um, I like the title Our Father Prayer um, for a few reasons. One is that Jesus prayed the Lord's Prayer. It was his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Our prayer, our Father Prayer, is what Jesus taught us to pray. So that's how I talk about it. Um, and lastly, I want to mention that we have a prayer worksheet. So in other words, the assignment for this week, um, it's attached as a PDF online. Um, it's in your email, but also um, you have it this morning. And it's basically a worksheet to, to share with you how to create a prayer list. There's a simple version and a slightly more complex version, depending on what you want to do. So I also want to say that there's a few resources that I would recommend that that supplement what we're going to do today. Um, the first one is Jim Cimbala's book, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire. It's about the Brooklyn Tabernacle and how their prayer meetings before church radically changed the life of their church. Um, and then another one is Praying the Psalms by Thomas Merton. Uh, this is like a really tiny book. Um, you can read it very quickly. Uh, within an hour, I would say. And it basically casts the vision for reading the Psalms as a family. And then the third one is Brother Lawrence's Practicing the Presence of God, which is the second kind of the bonus reading for this class. And that is essentially prayer. Um, 
And so the there's other resources. I've written at, at the present five blogs about prayer in the last probably three months. And these are long form blogs. So if you add them together, it's like a short little book. But those links are in the PDF of the of the um, of the notes for the class today. So you can actually click on those um, in the PDF. Um, and so there's going to be launching points where I kind of direct you that way. Use those as resources. I go, it's really actually kind of tough to cover prayer in an hour and a half. And so um, go ahead and if, if you're interested in those, go ahead and read those as well. So here's a question. Why pray? Why should we even pray? And I think, number one, we pray because that's how we ask God for salvation. It's elemental. It's fundamental. It's the primal salvation call. It's called prayer. And so in one sense, we must pray. Because the only way that we can say to God, please forgive me, is to say it. Right? And then in Psalm 55, verse 16, it says, But I call to the Lord, and the Lord saves me. I think also, once we get past sort of the basics of we need to pray. I think prayer works. You know, it's funny we say prayer works because in one sense, it's not our prayer that works, it's God that works. Our prayers affect God who works. So if that's what people mean when they say prayer works, then, then that's fine. But what does it accomplish? What does prayer actually do in our lives? I think it can do a lot. Here's a few of the things. God heals leads us to obedience, changes our hearts, gives us wisdom, guidance, forgiveness. God changes us through prayer. And we intercede for others through prayer. The pinnacle of what happens as a result of prayer, though, I would say is that God gives himself to us. So prayer is a command. Prayer works. But really, the highest reason to pray is that we pray because that's what the people of God do. And we've got examples throughout history. We look at, you know, you could look throughout the whole Bible. I want to focus on just three, Moses, David, and Jesus. In Exodus 33, verses 15 to 18, we see Moses say to God, in this crucial moment where the people of God are basically running wild in the desert, And he says, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Then Moses says, now show me your glory. I love it. He's like, I want more. Show me your glory. And what God does as a result is unprecedented to this point in biblical history. The Lord passes in front of him doesn't show him his face, and he announces his name, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God. Slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, extending love to the thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. But he does not leave the guilty unpunished, but he punishes the children to the third and fourth generation. He reveals who he is. He reveals his glory. Because Moses asked for it. So I think this shows that prayer is relational. And that our prayers actually affect God. It's not like, 
okay, check that box. I'm supposed to pray. And then it's like, uh, I say stuff and then it, it stops at the ceiling. No, no, God, God is affected by our prayers because he wants a relationship with us. Jesus goes as far to say, whatever you ask in my name, it will be given to you. And so God meets us where it's appropriate and good. Obviously, he doesn't give us anything that's not good for us. But God is completely willing, I would say even anxious for us to pray. Like he's waiting for it. Then we look at David, who's a man of prayer. I mean, he wrote the Psalms, right? Not, not all of them, but he wrote a lot of them. And it says in 1 Samuel 13, 14, that David was a man after God's own heart. And I wanted to actually pause on this because I think that this characteristic of David reveals the kind of man that he was that helped him become a man of prayer. So what does this phrase mean, a man after God's own heart? I look back and it's the exact phrase used in the King James Version of 1611. And and the reason I bring that up is because I want to say that it's a relic, I think, of an ancient or an old translation. We never say we're after someone's heart, so I think we actually don't know what that means. So I went back a few years ago and looked at, okay, what does this mean to be after someone's heart? It's kind of a big deal, right? It's a characteristic of King David, the archetypal king of Israel. You know, the only time we might talk about this is when we're chasing after a girl or I guess chasing after a guy because it's something we don't have, right? So it's a man after God's own heart. We get this vision of chasing after God, which there's truth to that. But when you look at at some of the original languages, so Greek, the Septuagint version of the Old Testament, but then in Hebrew, it seems to be a little different. And so I wanted to share with you what, what I believe this phrase means. I think it means to be aligned with God's heart. So test this understanding of it. Think about David's, uh, David being a man aligned with God's heart. It makes a little more sense, especially it comports well with Acts 13.22, when Paul is actually preaching about the story of Israel, and we get just a little sentence that I think explains this. He says, telling this story, um, speaking of what Samuel said of David, who said, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. So a man aligned with my heart. He will do whatever I want him to do. Does that sound like someone who's thinking about being connected to God? No, it sounds like someone who's aligned with God and he'll do whatever I want him to do. And so I think you could think of it more like someone who's aligned with God's heart or who lives according to God's heart. And so that's our posture as we pray. The difference here is union. So David wasn't trying to get somewhere to be close with God. David was close with God. That's kind of the point. And so I would say that the essence of a person of prayer is someone who's aligned with God's heart. That's who they are. Prayer comes out of that. And really, Jesus is the the prime example of this for us. And he prays this very thing for us in John 17. May they be one as we are one. It's actually his prayer for us. May they be, 
Okay, so Jesus and the Father are one, he says. May they be one as we are one. It's like, does he mean one with each other or one with God? And it's kind of like, yep. There's this sense of union, relational connection. It's deep and abiding. That's a part of the life of Christ. And he invites us into that union that he has with the Father. And he says, may they be one as we are one. And so... What I want to argue for is that the purpose of prayer is union, not utilitarianism. (laughs) What that means is we don't use prayer simply as a tool, a utility. It's a pathway for connection and union. And so we don't go to God primarily to get something. We go to God to connect, and out of that connection, He gives. It's a big difference. Think about your relationship with your children and what you want with them. And really, we see the epitome in this, of this in the prayer life of Jesus in Gethsemane. In Matthew 26, 39, he says, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Alignment. Prayer is an act of alignment. I guess it's like going to get your, your tires aligned. Like They're doing pretty good, but prayer brings it back together. And so we pray because it's right, it works, and it's just what we do as the people of God. But what is prayer exactly? I want to say what it's not. I want this to be clear. It's not sending good vibes someone's way or sending them good thoughts. That's literally vain, meaning it means nothing. Unfortunately for the Facebook people who write that all the time, it means absolutely nothing. Prayer is, however, communication with God, which happens through words. And so, the pinnacle of communication in this way, the pinnacle of prayer, involves both speaking and hearing from God. And so, let's look at the life of Jesus and his key teachings on prayer. To ground, I say the key teachings, really, it's, we're going to focus on just one passage in Matthew 6 to ground the rest of our time in this subject in Scripture. Because while we have shadows of these deep abiding relationships with God through Moses and David, Jesus is the fulfillment and he offers the fulfillment to us about what this rich life looks like. And let me just say this, that I think there are some pretty big barriers. And I want to talk about these so that you know I understand where you're coming from. You know, I think unanswered prayers keep us from wanting to pray. But let me say this, just because you don't understand God or how he responds to us in prayer doesn't mean that you should stop praying. You don't have to understand God to connect with him through prayer. I think also sometimes we don't want to pray because we're not really feeling it. You know, we don't sense God's presence. But let me just say that you also don't have to feel a certain way to pray. It's okay to enter prayer not feeling like it. It's a relationship, and it takes a lot of time, and diverse experiences which have different kinds of feelings associated with it. And also, sometimes prayer is work. I mean, think about Jesus and the disciples in Gethsemane. Why did they fall asleep? Because they were weak, like us, right? But 
I think Jesus was encouraging them, like, watch and pray, right? It's like, you can do this. Um, but then he went because he was strong, right? So I think there's a sense in which prayer is work. Um, just like any other relationship, communication takes work. It's the, the school of hard knocks in your first years of marriage, right? Um, it's important to know the feeling side of things. But I also want to say, you know, maybe you don't really know how to pray deeply. Maybe for you, prayer has been just sort of like, uh, I guess I'll thank God for my food and I'll say the Lord's Prayer, I'll get through the words, and then it's like, okay. So when you talk about a deep prayer life, Chad, it's like, well, what does that even mean? And what I want to do today is help you with these things, especially that last part, how to pray. I also want to say, that I understand the difficulty of the mystery of God in prayer. Um, you know, just to open up a little bit, this year we lost our daughter um, when she was, right before she was born, she was stillborn, Catherine Hope Harrington. And, you know, we prayed for her at the beginning, in the middle, at the end. And we asked that God would heal her and save her, and, and God said no. <laughs> That's hard. I don't understand that. There's not a category for me for that. Um, so, like, I understand that prayer can be really, really difficult. Trying to pr learn to pray again for a healthy child, that's hard. But it's worth. what I want to say is it's worth it. And God meets us there. And the fact that we don't understand God helps us to pray more humbly. So I just want to say that it is complex and dynamic, and you don't have to understand it to do it. Um, so let's look at the life and the instructions of Jesus for how to pray. Um, I have created for you a handout called The Prayer Habits of Jesus. It's two sheets. This is the first one. It's literally a chart of all the times where it explicitly says Jesus prayed, and then there's an analysis of, of those prayer times so we can sort of gather what did Jesus prayer life look like it's actually quite a bit there to learn from so I encourage you to look at that outside of our class time um, but I do think it's really important it would be a really fun devotion for you to have maybe even a week's full of devotions to just go through that there's only one I want to point out here during our, our class time because I think it's it's like a general statement it comes from Luke 5:16 and it says Jesus often withdrew to lonely places Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. So this is where our disciplines start to compound. Silence and solitude, a lonely place means no one's there. And so now that you've created more space in your life, this is something to fill it with. Prayer. And so if Jesus himself disciplined himself to get away from people, and to pray, how much more do we need that? And so we follow Jesus, his life, but we also follow his teachings. And so we're going to dig into the Our Father prayer from Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 to 13. There's a parallel in Luke 11, but we're going to focus on Matthew 6. And I want to say this, I want to give a, a few caveats. Um, I'm going to give you my best understanding of the Our Father prayer based on both my experience and my study of this at a deep level. Um, but I'm, the reason I'm saying that is because I'm going to take an approach to the Our Father prayer 
that is likely different than what you've heard on many levels. It's going to challenge what you thought it meant. And so I just want to say, this is my best understanding, but I also want to say, weigh what I'm going to say and test it. Find out if it's true, okay? Because my goal is to help you truly understand the Lord's Prayer um, so that it can be a framework for a vibrant, rich, and deep prayer life for you. That's my goal. And so I want to risk going into the details of this prayer because I think it's worth it. This is the prayer that we're supposed to pray. I think it's really important we understand what it means line by line. I also want to say this, that I hope that the Lord's Prayer can become for you a framework for prayer, not just something to recite from rote memory. In other words, I want you to be able to use this as a launching pad for all kinds of prayer. And part of that is asking open-ended questions. So I've written a whole article on the importance and how to ask open-ended questions in prayer. And so that's one of the, the blogs that you can read. And I would encourage you to do that. I'm going to incorporate that and sort of assume that practice as we go along. Um, so let's go ahead and jump in to the Our Father prayer. It starts with Our Father in Heaven. And so I'm going to go ahead and write this up here. And by the way, my translation of it is in your, your handout, and we've designed it so you can print it off, frame it. It's beautiful, so it can help you remember what I'm going to teach you today and to recite it. My wife and I um, recite this translation together every day. So, Our Father in Heaven. Father is literally the first word that we pray. In Greek, it comes before our. And I think that that's significant because I think unless we learn to pray Father and mean it, in our hearts. It's going to be really hard to move on with any sort of substantive prayer. It's both a term of authority and intimacy, and that's why I think it's really foundational for prayer. We see this in Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 19 to 20. God says, How gladly would I treat you like sons and give you a desirable land, the most beautiful inheritance of any nation. I thought you would call me father and not turn away from following me. But like a woman unfaithful to her husband, so you have been unfaithful to me, O house of Israel. Saying, Father says, I will obey you. In Jeremiah 3, 19 and 20. And I think that's profound. I think the first thing that Father means is, I will follow you. The our part gets at the intimacy. Gets at the same thing that hero Israel, the Lord our God the Lord is one. The Lord, our God. It's important to add that personal pronoun to our Father because that's the intimacy of prayer. It's not just Father, but our Father. And the word Abba, which is not used in this passage, but is used elsewhere in the New Testament, gets at that. And I have written a whole article on the meaning of Abba, not meaning Daddy. It's not enough. It's not the fullness of it. That only gets at the intimacy. Abba means both intimacy and authority. And so when we pray Father, that's what we should mean. God, I will obey you. When we say it, we, we're saying I will obey you. And, and yet we're also saying, but God, I know you and you know me. I am your son. I am your daughter. So when we start the Our, Our Father prayer, we're starting with that posture. And it, it orients us to pray to God with respect 
and almost excitement in the relationship. Also, Jesus prayed, Father. If you look at the chart of his prayer life, you'll see that he often starts his prayers, <laughs> I think it's almost always, with Father. So he's not asking us to do anything he doesn't do. The second part of that is in heaven. Now, you might think, okay, I get, I get that part, Chad, but it, it actually might be a little bit better than you thought. In heaven doesn't mean he's off somewhere really far away, and when you die, you get to go there too. That's not what in heaven means. Dallas Willard points this out in the Divine Conspiracy on page 48 for reference about how it actually should probably say our Father in the heavens, meaning the atmosphere in which we currently live and what's right above it. That's a whole different story. So if you look at how Greek language speakers thought of this phrase, and by the way, it is plural, woodenly translated, it is our Father in the heavens. We say in heaven because it's shorthand and maybe because we've always said it. But when you look at what it actually says, and you go back to how they understood this concept, the heavens meant sort of the, the different elements of the atmosphere around us. Not just what's up in the stars, but actually what's above us, but also all around us. And so when we say our Father in the heavens, or our Father in heaven for short, we're actually saying God who is in a different dimension, but right around us. You know, when Jesus says the kingdom of God is near, it's that kind of thing. So, so I want you to know that when we pray our Father in heaven, we're not saying our Father who's really far away and isn't close to us. It's actually our Father who's beyond us, but right next to us in a different dimension that intersects with our world. That's our Father in heaven. Okay? Your name be holy. So... The first thing I want to say is the meaning of name. It's like, well, we know what a name means, right? But I think it's significant. We need to talk about it. When we talk about someone's name, we're talking about their personhood, who they are. We're talking about their reputation. When we talk about someone's name, we're talking about their personhood, their reputation. We're even talking about the power that they hold as a person. You know, this is clear, I think, in history at other times when we actually respected authority as an entire culture, uh, by and large. But think about it, even in a lot of circumstances today, when someone has a badge of access, right? It's their name, it's their face. Uh, where a signature, when you're writing on a contract or a check, has power, because it's your name. It's also permission. Well, who sent you? Well, so-and-so sent me, right? In this sense, someone's name enables something to happen. So you could think about it as the life of somebody or even the soul of somebody. So what I want to do is I also want to draw a parallel. So this is, I'm going to kind of do a visual representation of the Our Father prayer over here. So you could think about Our Father, your name in that sense of who he is, his reputation, his power. 
But you'll notice that I didn't write, Hallowed be your name, because I want to suggest an alternative translation for it. First, <laughs> the first reason is, what does Hallowed even mean? It's like, we never say that anywhere ever about anything. So I would argue it's, an, it's a bad translation. It's antiquated language that needs to be rethought. Because if you use a word that you've, you don't know what it means, then it's, it's not helpful. Second, I think we, it actually is misleading. We think that hallowed be your name means God, your name is holy. But that's not what it means. It doesn't mean that we're saying God, your name is holy. And the Greek makes this clear. Most people believe that it's a declarative statement, like this is who you are. But the truth is, it's actually an imperative command. Just like your kingdom come, your will be done. So I argue that it should be parallel with those in how we phrase it because it has the same meaning. Isn't that interesting? Your name be holy? It's like, well, isn't God's name holy? How can it become holy? Let's talk about that. It means that we're asking God's name to be holy throughout our lives in the places where it's not treated or viewed that way. So when it's, it's also like the kingdom, your kingdom come, your will be done. Well, isn't God's kingdom coming and his will being done? Yeah, right? So, but not in some ways. He doesn't reign everywhere. I mean, he reigns over everything, but he doesn't force it on anyone. So in the same way, his name is not holy everywhere, is it? It's clearly not, both in our lives sometimes, but also in the lives of those around us. So when we pray your name be holy, we're actually asking that God actualize something that's not currently a reality. And this includes our words and actions. When you look at rabbinical thought and teaching that can be traced back close to the time of Jesus, that's how they thought of this phrase, your name be holy. It was actually in vogue in some circles and at some points, even though it's not today, to talk like this. And the way that they understood it was how I'm talking about it. That when they would, they would think about and, and even pray your name be holy God, they would be expecting God to move them towards words and actions that made his name holy in their lives. Just like your kingdom come, your will be done. So it's different than praising God, unfortunately. It, I say unfortunately because maybe that's how you've always started the Lord's Prayer. You know, it's like, we take the Acts model of prayer, which is good, and we say, oh, well, that comes from the Lord's Prayer. It's actually not that way. Now, you can make God's name holy during your prayer, but that's not the primary sort of output um, is that the prayer is a fulfillment of the prayer. It's more than that. So it's definitely a good time to praise God, right? I'm not saying don't give him adoration. I'm saying there's more to it than that. Um, we're asking God to be holy in our lives and in our families and in our churches. We're asking God to change something. It's like, but that's weird. How is this a prayer, you know? Isn't God already going to do this? Isn't he going to make his name holy no matter what? So why do we pray about it? And I just want to say that, you know, I want to go back to the point that prayer is not necessarily about changing God's mind, but about aligning us with what he wants to do. And so, you know, you look at the life of Jesus, and this is what I want to do at, at each point, is to say, how did Jesus live this out? And in John 17, verse 4, 
Jesus says, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work that you gave me to do. And then just a few verses later, he says, I have revealed you to those whom you have given me. In other words, your reputation, God, I have made known. And in verse four, he says, by the work you gave me to do. And it was also by the teachings. So the life and teachings of Jesus made holy God's name. And that's why he teaches us to pray this like he did in John 17. And so what does this look like? You know, it's like practically speaking, what are the prayers that we say? In other words, if this is a launching pad for deeper prayer, I think that we ask God to help us to speak his name in places where we're going to be going in the day or that week. God, make your name holy when I go to work, when I'm talking to so-and-so today. It orients us towards speaking even at an elemental level God's name. You know, there's an interesting thought that if someone doesn't speak the name of Jesus ever, are they really a Christian? Like if you literally never hear the word Jesus or God come out of their mouth, you know, in a, in a wholesome way, are they even a Christian? I would argue maybe not. Like if you literally never say the name of Jesus, does that mean that you know him? Probably not. Or if you do, it's a really terrible relationship because you never talk about him. So when we're saying your name be holy, it's like, God, use my words, use my life to glorify you, to make you different and revered in the eyes of the people around me. And then here's an open-ended question that you can ask. What does it look like, God, for your name to be holy in my life today? And then just listen. That's the kind of thing I'm talking about when I say incorporate open-ended questions. Use this as a framework. Your name be holy. Dallas Willard talks about sitting in the Lord's prayer and using it to organize his prayer life for hours, he said. I think that's an amazing prayer life, one that, that I would like to experience more and more. Then Jesus says, your kingdom come. Now we know that one, right? So your name. Jesus says, your kingdom come. Well, what does kingdom mean? Is he saying like set up a political reign? Is he saying it's just like, let me reign in your hearts individually? I think the kingdom of God needs to be defined. And it means the active reign of God. It's a simple way to say it. And, you know, you need a king, you need a people, and you need a land. Well, the world is God's land. His people are us, and he's king. So his kingdom is when his reign is actualized in our lives and in our world. And so when we pray this, we're actually asking God to reign. As with your name be holy, we're asking God to do what he already wants to do. And what he's already begun to do, this is not new stuff to God. When Jesus came in Mark chapter 1, he said, I've come to preach the kingdom. So what this is not, is we're not asking for the end of the world when we die so that we can go to heaven. Again, we need to reframe our thinking about what heaven means. We're actually asking the opposite. We're asking that God come here, right? It ends with on earth as it is in heaven. So we're actually welcoming the kingdom of God into the parts of our lives 
that are not submitted to the reign of God. Or that we anticipate wanting to be submitted to the reign of God. And so when we look at the life of Jesus, did he pray your kingdom come? It's like, yeah, he did. Well, first of all, he preached it. Like I said, in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, he said, you know, I've come to preach the kingdom. And then, and then he preached from town to town. And as he's going along preaching, it says in Mark chapter 1, verse 35, just a few verses later, that he got up early before the sun rose to pray. And his disciples were like, where's the hero? Because the night before he had just healed everybody in the town. And he's like, what? they're like, where, you know, Peter's leading the charge. Where, where'd you go, Jesus? They found him. And they said, like, like what are you doing? <laughs> You're famous. Don't you know that? And he says, I need to go to other villages so I can continue to preach. Preach the kingdom. What do you think he was praying about early in the morning? If he wasn't praying your kingdom come, I don't know what he was praying. So Jesus not only brought the kingdom, but he matched his actions and words of kingdom bringing reign with prayer. And I think that we should too. So what does this look like? I think one way that we can ask God, your kingdom come, is to just ask God, what would, what would my life look like in this area if you were in control? That's kind of an easy way to think about the kingdom of God. What would this place look like if God were in control? You could even think of it on a molecular level. Like if every molecule in this room were ordered and arranged by the reign of God, what would it look like? That's the kingdom of God come. So we can pray, God, please reign in this area of my life, and you can name it. God, please take control of this area. God, please reign in my country and in the Middle East, and wherever there is chaos, God, reign. And then as we pray, God gives us ideas about how he wants to equip us and motivate us toward being a part of his active and actualized reign in this world, on earth as it is in heaven. So we can pray, God, reign at work today. Now remember, the kingdom of God is not manipulative, so we're primarily asking God to reign through us. <laughs> we start thinking, we're saying, God, bring your kingdom at work, and people aren't getting along with your prayer. It's like, <laughs> you know, we could start being funny about it. So when we pray this, we should be the first to listen. And then we pray for other people, not coerce people into the kingdom. And then we can ask open-ended questions like this. God, what does your kingdom reign look like in my life today? And then we just listen. Then it's your will be done. And then they all sort of end with on earth as it is in heaven. Again, heaven here is in the heavens. It's the same phrase. And so we find that we've got the name, the kingdom, and the will of God that we're asking to come down to earth as it is in God's dimension. In other words, God has a reality that he is inviting us to bring into our lives. And so this is similar to inviting the kingdom in, and it's similar to the your name be holy part, 
but it's also different. We're asking the very will of God to be made manifest in our lives. It's like, what does that mean? Think about it really simply. Will is also the same word in Greek for desire. So you can think about it like, God, make what you want happen. Now, first, it's different than the kingdom, in a sense, because it's a little more central to the person of God. You know, when you talk about someone's kingdom, right, or someone's nation that they rule, that's not them. That's sort of um, their territory, what they do. So we're actually moving from the reputation to the activity to the very center of God's person, his very desires, and we're asking that to come and be done on earth as it is in the heavens. So what is God's will? Well, (laughs) this isn't God's will for your life. Remember, not utility, but union. It's about him, not us. We're asking God's will, not his will framed in terms of my life. Because a lot of times it's going to be deny yourself because we've got a mission here. We're asking God more on a heart level, what do you want? This can get pretty vulnerable because if you really ask God, what does he want? He might just tell you. I love the fact that that's exactly what Jesus does in the Garden of Gethsemane. When he's asking God, take this cup from me, not what I will, but what you will, he's literally saying, hey, it's what you want, not what I want. So Jesus asked us to pray this way because he knows how important it is, especially in pivotal moments where we're tempted to live our way and to do things our way. And so what does this mean, practically speaking, when we pray your will be done? I think we can literally just ask God, what do you want of me today? And then listen. Or I've got this situation at work or with my family. What do you want there? And then listen. You know, when we pray your will be done, it's not like, okay, I asked for it, so it's going to happen. I mean, that's true in a sense. But what about prayer as union, where we connect with God on these things? You know, hey, God, I'm thinking about doing this. This is what I want. But what do you think? What do you want there? I love that Jesus says, I want this, but what do you want? It goes back to that desire thing that we talked about in the first session. What do you want? You can actually just tell that to God. But at the end of the day, the real question is, but God, what do you want? Because Father, I will obey you. And so prayer, when we say on earth as it is in heaven, is an act of offering petitions to God to welcome him into our world. And so this is kind of cool, but when we pray our Father in heaven and we're asking God to come, in a sense, down to earth, right? It's like our Father, he's inviting us into his very heart and then he comes down to earth. And so he draws us into his heart and then he says, and now let's bring that into your world. That's what prayer does. 
Prayer draws us into the heart of God only for the heart of God to come to our world. And so this is a reminder that while God is very much otherworldly, he's also very much for this world. And he meets us in the very earthly things that we experience every day. Namely, and the very first one is bread. And so give us today our daily bread. God is saying, I care about your life. I care about your sustenance. I want you to survive. <laughs> I want you to live. Also, bread tastes good. My daughter Emma always wants the bread, you know. Um, it, you could think of it as, as basic sustenance. It's a, a covering for what <laughs> keeps us alive. But also, we can think of it as an opportunity to, to thank God. Similar to your name be holy, the primary meaning isn't... Um, isn't to praise God in that sense, but, it, but to ask God about this. We're asking God to give us our bread, right? It's really simple. But we can also say, thank you, God, for what you have done. And so I think that rightly understood, this is both literal and metaphorical, you know, and it keeps us grounded, right? Because if we're all up in the clouds and your kingdom, your will, you know, it's like, but hey, what about bread too, right? <laughs> it's like, we're welcoming God into the very mundane things of our life, like eating. And the fact that it says, today our daily bread, has convinced me that this is a prayer that we should pray every day. In other words, I'm saying, let's pray this every day, not just occasionally, because I believe that it was intended that way. And this would have reminded them, the Jews, that were listening to Jesus, of the manna in the desert that came every day. And then on Friday, it would come in double portion for the Sabbath. Um, also in Jesus' day, a lot of people lived, you know, day to day. Their daily bread really was like, I get bread today, but I, I don't know where it's coming from tomorrow kind of thing. God, please provide. That kind of heart, I think is important for us to remember as we pray. You know, and our current 2020 pandemic that we're in right now, I think is a good reminder for a lot of people. Um, not everybody, so I think, I think we need to pray and remember what other people are suffering. We could even pray God give us, right? It's not give me, it's give us our daily bread. We're praying on behalf of others as well, collectively. Um, because we're humble and we know that it does come from God, our daily sustenance. Well, if you look at the life of Jesus, did Jesus pray for his daily bread? Well, we know that he thanked God for it, so he knew that it came from God, God the Father. Jesus was God the Son. But he had this union relationship with the Father so that before he fed the 5,000, it says he broke it and gave thanks to God. And then we remember that during the Last Supper, right before, he broke the bread, gave thanks, and then said, this is my body broken for you. It was very much embedded in the very heart of Jesus to think about thanking God and asking God for daily bread. And then even in, in the temptation, when Jesus was in the desert, he said, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. He knows that bread comes from God. So, what does this look like? We pray, I think, for our finances. We pray for success and work because we know that that comes from God. But we never forget to pray for the actual bread. Because really, 
a lot of the stuff we pray for, we don't need. So if we're praying for that promotion, it's like, okay. But if we want to get to the very heart of God, we're not praying for exorbitant wealth and success for our own glory and comfort. That's not the prayer. So it does ground us in the basics. And it reminds us of the basics. Us, not just me. So it's hard to pray us in this scenario without thinking about the poor. Our poor brothers and sisters. And so we can ask God to, pro- to provide for these things. We can say, God, please provide for X, Y, and Z. And then forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. I'm going to add over here debt. Again, it's likely that this is both literal and metaphorical that Jesus is talking about here. Because in the Torah, what's called usury was specifically prohibited, which is unreasonably high interest rates. So (laughs) it's actually against the heart of God to charge too much interest. Um, And in some circumstances, it was wrong in the Torah to even charge interest at all, specifically for the poor uh, among them and for fellow Jews. So, you know, Exodus 22, 24, Leviticus 25, 36 to 37, and Deuteronomy 23, 19, we see these kinds of things. So I definitely think that real um, abuse of of (laughs) being a loan manager is, is sort of assumed, but I think it's primarily metaphorical. And by the way, the year of Jubilee was where all debts were supposedly forgiven, right? So when we talk about, you know, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors, did you know that there's no evidence that, that the people of God ever incorporated the year of Jubilee? We have no evidence that they actually did that. So when Jesus comes and opens the Isaiah scroll, which says, I've come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It's fulfilled in your hearing. I think he's actually talking about a different economy of grace. That's just something to think about for those of us in finance. Um, I'm not saying that is a pat answer. I'm just saying that's something to think about. But I think it was also, you know, metaphorical, and I would say primarily metaphorical. Um, So we can see this. Uh, evidence for this in Matthew 18, starting in verse 22, where Jesus tells a parable about debt in order to teach Peter and the disciples about forgiveness. Um, so it kind of means we literally can't through pray, we can't get through prayer um, using the Our Father prayer authentically while still holding a grudge against somebody. You you, you like can't make it past that line. <laughs> it's the only part of the prayer that's instructive. It's like as I have also forgiven my debtors, you know, as we have. So um, it's a daily reminder of God's grace, both in our lives personally, but in other people's lives. Even Jesus prayed similar to this in Luke 23, 34, but obviously he was sinless. So he prayed, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Again, going back to the practice of Jesus, he, he practiced what he preached. So when you pray, take time to forgive people. Like, Sit in it. I would say, first, you know, ask God, who do you want me to forgive? 
And it's like, man, this can happen on a daily basis that you need to forgive people. And it's like, why? Why is that so important that he put it in this prayer? Well, first of all, I think it's because if we're holding a grudge, then why would God forgive us is kind of the point of Matthew 18, where Jesus tells that parable. But the second part is that it's good for us to let go of these things that we might hold. It's harmful to our bodies and our souls when we are holding anger, frustration, and and things against people. So it's a gift to, to be reminded of this. And so I would say as you pray and using this as a framework, you know, and there, you don't have to focus on everything all the time. Like maybe one day this is all you pray. In fact, I would say that um, when Rachel and I go through the Lord's Prayer, our, uh, when, at our best, we will pause at one line for the day and focus on that. That's sort of the, the best we can do right now is we say the Lord's Prayer, like rote memory, and then at the end of it, we'll, one of us will pick one line and we ask God an open-ended question. So we might, you know, even recently we said, you know, God, forgive us. And then we would name the wrongs we had done together as a, as a couple. You know, that's what a, what a great way to use the Lord's Prayer as a family. You know, to say it all together in unison becomes a practice. <laughs> if we forget Emma, who's not even two, will say pray. <laughs> it's such a common practice in our home. Not because we're great, but it just is. That's just how we do it. But, oh, man, I'm so thankful that she's able to see that. Um, I'm thankful for the model that I had in my parents for being persons of prayer. And so... I would suggest that this isn't just something you can do personally, that you can do it with your family. And then we, we do, we say, God, would you forgive, you know, me of the X, Y, and Z? Name it in front of people if you, if you want or on your own. Um, but then also, God, who do you want me to forgive? And you could just say their name. God, I forgive so-and-so. Uh, you know, if you're alone, I encourage you to be specific. In fact, I would say be specific with both of them where appropriate. You know, so if you're completely alone, be really specific about these things because I think there's power in the specificity. You know, think about when someone forgives or asks for forgiveness in regular life, right? If they're like, if I made a mistake, I'm sorry about it. You know, that's like the worst form of apology. I mean, well, at least they're apologizing, but that's still pretty, that's still pretty like, eh. Or they could say, hey, I'm really sorry for what I did. It's like, well, what did you do in your mind that you did wrong? You know, there's healing in saying, I'm sorry for the words I spoke to you when I said, I'm sorry for treating you the the way I did yesterday when I walked in the room and this happened. In the same way, I think when we pray to God, let's add specificity to both our grievances, those who have committed sin against us and our sins, by naming it clearly. I think we dig deeper into that well of, of God's graces in forgiveness. And then we move along and it's, lead us not into the time of trial, but rescue us from the evil one. But sometimes I laugh at the fact that this ends in the word evil one, like the phrase 
evil one. Like, that's how our prayer ends. <laughs> it's kind of like how Mark's gospel ends and it, it, with the word afraid. It's like, oh, that's not what I would have expected. <laughs> our prayer ends with the evil one. So, so going back to the issue of translation, I think, you know, most of us say, lead us not into temptation. But I want to argue for time of trial because I think that it's more helpful. Although there's an element of temptation in this phrase. And here's why I think this. Number one, the NRSV does translate it that way, time of trial. But number two, I think the evidence is convincing that time of trial is more at the heart of what this prayer is about. So if, if you kind of go to the level of Greek analysis, testing and temptation, so lead us not to a time of temptation, leads not into a time of trial or testing. They're both legitimate translations. In other words, the word can go either way. In fact, sometimes it's kind of a pun to use them together. Um, in fact, James chapter 1, verses 12 to 14, is a great example of this. So let me read it. Starting in James 1, verse 12, we read about being tested. It says, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, or testing, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Okay, so that's the same word used here, trial or testing. Then the same word is used to mean temptation the very next few verses. In verse 13, it says, when tempted, same word. No one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. God does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he's dragged away and enticed. So here's the difference between how we translate it. What's the intended outcome? It's temptation when Satan is trying to lure us into sin. It's trial or testing when God wants to put us through the ringer so that we come out stronger. And so that we come out on the other side surviving, right? Um, so we look at, you know, the history of the people of God. And, and God actually tests people. This is not uncommon. I mean, in James 1, it talks about going through trials. We look at Abraham in Genesis chapter, or, uh, yeah, Abraham in Genesis chapter 22. It says, and God tested him. And then it says that the Spirit led Jesus into the desert to be tested by Satan. It's like, oh my God. Goodness, okay, so being tested and God even initiating that is totally normal. And so I think to talk about God tempting us, well, that's a misnomer. God doesn't tempt, but God does test. And here's the thing. No one wants to be tested, just like no one wants to starve or to go a day without food. So that's kind of my argument is that, number one, lead us not into temptation. Well, God would never lead us into temptation, but he might lead us into a time of testing. And we'd simply prefer not to. But even if we do, rescue us from the evil one. Even if you do lead us into the desert of trial, when we're there and we experience the temptation of Satan, rescue us from him. So I think that visual changes things a little bit. Again, there's a, there's a note of the temptation there because the, the Satan is tempting us, right? But, 
what I think the heart of the prayer is, is God, I'd really prefer not to go through a time of trial. And, and think about it like this. Would we ever wish testing and trial on someone? No, we're not seeking it out. <laughs> and so I think we pray that way because we're human. But also, you know, I think, I think that um, there's merit in that. It's not something to be sought out. If God leads you there, and you've prayed this, then you know God wants you there. And so you have confidence, and then you can finish the prayer, but rescue us from the evil one. And I like rescue as a translation versus deliver just because I like the word better. It sort of implies the fact that actual peril and failure is at stake. When we're messing with the evil one, it's not like, yeah, and get me out of there. It's like, no, rescue me, because things are really bad. I mean, the evil one, so if we go back to, hey, I'd really not like to go into a time of trial, sort of understanding of this. Does that sound familiar? If there's any way, would you please take this cup from me? Jesus prayed this. Yet not what I will, but what you will. So my translation holds weight, even in the prayer life of Jesus. Plus, it's exactly the same word that Jesus uses when he, in Mark 14, 38, tells the disciples who had fallen asleep while he's praying this. He says, keep awake and pray that you may not come into the time of trial. Your spirit is willing. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He actually told them, he reminded them of the Our Father prayer. He's like, hey, remember, this is one of those times where you pray you won't go into the time of trial. Well, and they did. And I think when he said, for the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, I, I think he was saying, because when you're in the trial, it's the school hard knocks. And you think you're willing to go into this trial, but the flesh is weak. So it's like, pray. What sealed the deal for me for this interpretation, though, um, I think is, is Matthew and Luke chapter 4. But really, I think a good test case is Luke 22. So Luke 22 shows us how Jesus interacted with Peter, how he talked about trials, the testing of faith, and Satan. So Luke 22, verses 28 to 34, drives this point home for me. It says, You are those who have stood by me in my trials. And I confer to you a kingdom, just as my father conferred one to me, so that you may eat and drink at the table of my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So Jesus is saying that in his life, he actually went through trials. Like before his big trial, he, and even though he went through one at the beginning, his life was basically characterized by trials, right? Then he says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. And then Peter goes on to say, you know, I'm ready to go to prison and to death with you. And so what we learn from this, number one, is that, like I said, Jesus went through trials. But also, Jesus expects that Peter was about to go through a trial. One in which Satan himself attacks him. 
It's kind of a Job moment. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. It's like, that is not what I want. <laughs> but then Jesus says, I prayed for you. Well, what did he pray? It seems as though God granted him like he granted Satan in Job the ability to test Simon. It says, but Jesus prayed for him. Well, what did he pray? I believe that Jesus prayed simply that he wouldn't utterly fail. I think by this point, God had granted him the trial that Peter was going to go through. But his prayer was that as he's being sifted, that he wouldn't be burned up. <laughs> and I think that he's confident in his prayer because he says, when you've turned back, you'll strengthen your brothers. It goes back to the heart of God in our testing. It's like we don't want to be tested, but if we are, God can still make good of it, which is to be stronger and so that we can strengthen our brothers and sisters. It's in this very text in Luke 22. On the other hand, though, Satan's goal in our trial is that we fail. And this is very real. Jesus prays in John 17, protect them from the evil one. I don't pray that you would take them out of the world where the trials happen. It's like, but we don't want that. But his main prayer is that we would be rescued and protected from the evil one. So why do we pray to avoid this? I think... Because even the strong don't want to be tested. I think we will be attacked by Satan in times of trial or his powers. And I think there's a real risk of failure. Look at Judas. Satan motivated him. Okay, so this, this, there's real things at stake. Now, there, there's just one thing that I want to say about the translation, uh, the evil one. I think some translations have uh, deliver us from evil. But there's some good, very solid evidence to give us confidence that it is the evil one. Because it has the definite article, the, in front of it. And every time the word the is used in front of evil in the Greek New Testament, besides this, you know, in other words, if you're not assuming this, so if you look at every other case, 80% of the time, which is 24 out of 30, it's an evil person. So when the word the is in is tagged on before evil. 80% of the time, it's actually a person who's in mind, clearly. And the other five, it's an evil thing, but it's never evil in general. If you want to say evil in general, you take off the definite article. And so that leaves this one case, and I believe it's to be rescued from the evil one. So when we pray, God, lead us not into the time of testing of our faith, and he allows it, we're still saying, but rescue us from the evil one. And here's the thing. I, it's like, I've been thinking about this. Why would we pray this daily? Isn't this just like the big moments? But I really think that in a moment, even though you least expect it, I think that we can be thrust into a time of trial. And so I think we can pray this daily as a reminder that we're vulnerable. I think it's also... Another reason that we pray the Psalms, because the psalmists so often are in times of trial, and they teach us how to pray more specifically. So um, I've included this on your notes, uh, the PDF download, and then also the print-off. Um, I included it a few weeks ago as well, but I wanted to reiterate that you could just use this as a way to track your progress through reading the Psalms. So what does this look like, practically speaking? God, I think we 
you know, we could say, God, please do not let me be tested today, but if I enter it, help me to be strong. Hey, I know, God, that when I'm at work today, it could turn into a test in this circumstance. I might be tempted to lash out. I might be tempted to X, Y, or Z, but please help me to avoid that altogether. But if I enter into it, help me to be victorious. Enumerate the places in your day or your week ahead where you know that you'll be weak. And ask God to avoid the test and then ask God to be faithful even in the midst of it. So, I think what's amazing is that when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we're asking God, in the heavens, our Father, to bring us into His person. You could think about His name as being who He is in general, maybe even His soul. It's parallel in some sense to God's whole person. And His kingdom is sort of like when we think about our body, right? And then his will is the very core of who he is. So he's drawing us into the very heart of who he is. And then he's, he's saying, and let's go down into your world. And then he reigns over the, the earth in that sense. And he covers bread, debt, testing, Satan. He goes from the highest place, which is his holy name, he meets us in the middle, which is at the table of our bread. And then he goes into the depths of our lives where we're tested and even tempted when we come face to face with the evil one. He covers the whole gamut. And so when I talk about the Lord's Prayer being a framework for all our prayers, I think it's true. This prayer is amazingly rich and comprehensive. And so we can basically use this as a framework for all sorts of prayers, for thanksgiving, for forgiveness, for everything that we've talked about today. I think also the prayer helps us to align with God. And it goes back to the point I've been making all along that it's about alignment with God's heart. It's not like God wants the opposite of all of these things, right? These are the very things God already wants. And he's just inviting us as we pray to join him in these things. <laughs> so it's alignment in a sense where we're, it's like God's here and he has an agenda, right? So we align with him. But I want to make it really clear that it's not just our aligning with him. I think to the extent at which it fits within his will, he is aligning himself with us. Remember Moses. Remember the prayers of Jesus. Remember the prayers of the people of God throughout history. God listens and God moves and he acts and he changes things because we pray. So this isn't, let's just align our Prayer really is just us listening to God. I think that's very much a big part of it. But there are petitions and requests that are so vitally important in the ears of God that we must pray them because God wants to be affected in this relationship that he's invited us into. And so it really is a relationship where we align with each other. I also think it's kind of fun because Jesus is like, look, if you want the ear of the creator of the universe, I'm going to put the cookies on the low shelf. Here's how to pray. And it's really short. It's really easy to remember. And it's like, if you want the ear of the father, here's a cheat sheet. 
if you want to get this from dad, ask him like this, you know, it's like, how do you get what you want? <laughs> hey, as long as your wants fit within his will here, you get it. That's pretty cool. But I want to end on this, that while we pray the Our Father prayer and we ask for things, Luke 11 reminds us that the pinnacle of what we ask for is God himself. So if this is a new method to get what you want and that's it, you're going to miss out because in Luke 11, verses 11 to 13, Jesus says, which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? The best and ultimate thing that we can pray is God himself. We ask God, can I please have you? So when we pray prayers of union, Yes, we can get things, but what we ultimately want is God himself. And so, to conclude, I just want to say that, you know, this should be a launching pad for a deep and rich prayer life. I hope that it's been helpful. I hope that my, my words here make things clearer for you where they may have been fuzzy so that you can enter these things with confidence. Um, and a really practical, I guess, sort of output, you could call it, a way to put, um, put your knees on the ground and, and put the rubber on the road is, is to read through this one page. And there's uh, basically a prompt for you to start a prayer list. And there's a simple way, which is literally just get a piece of paper and write it, like write prayer list or whatever, and just write things you're praying for down. But then there's a more complex version, and this is the more complex version. <laughs> Again, really simple. Um, just depends on what you want and adapt it how you want it to be. I'm just trying to give you tools. Um, go ahead and start that this week. And this, this prayer list is specifically a seasonal prayer list where you, you'll keep this one list for maybe two to six months is sort of what I recommend. And you go back to it on a regular basis. Um, so it's supplemental and it's, it overlaps with the Our Father prayer. Um, another practice, and this is just kind of a bonus, something that you can do is in light of Luke 11, for, the, for 30 days, pick a time to start. Ask God every day for the Holy Spirit. That's it. Just say, God, give me your Holy Spirit. I want more. You know, we have the indwelling Holy Spirit, but I want, I want the Holy Spirit to take over more in my life. So it's, the, it's another challenge, but again, um, I've done that and it was really fruitful for me. I want to just reiterate something for you. Grace. Grace in all of this. This is a fun journey. It's a good, life-giving journey of God's grace. All right, that's it. That's class six. We'll see you guys next week. We'll talk about fasting, which is another form of prayer.